Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Suzanne Mettler and Robert C. Lieberman to discuss their new book, Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy, published by St. Martin's in 2020. Rob C. Lieberman is a Krieger Eisenhower Professor of Political Science at the Johns Hopkins University. He's the author of Shaping Race Policy, The United States in Comparative Perspective, and Beyond Discrimination, Racial Inequality in a Post-Racist Era. Welcome to New Books, Rob. Thanks very much. Suzanne Mettler is the John C. Uh, L. Senior Professor of American Institutions in the Government Department at Cornell University. She's the author of five books and a veteran of the New Books Network. She talked with Heath Brown about the government-citizen disconnect most recently, and also our editor-in-chief in Everything, Marshall Poe, about degrees of inequality, how the politics of higher education sabotage the American dream. Welcome back to New Books, Suzanne. Oh, delighted to be here again. Your book raises important questions for American politics, especially in November 2020 as we record this conversation. Donald Trump has refused to concede the presidential election to Joe Biden or begin the official transition process. The book's dramatic opening draws parallels between the policy and rhetoric of John Adams as he supported the Alien and Sedition Acts amidst bitter party rivalry in the 1790s and Donald Trump's targeting of immigrants, the press, and his political opponents. The book uses five periods in American political history to argue that there are four central threats to American liberal democracy, political polarization, racism and nativism, economic inequality, and excessive executive power. You maintain that the United States has faced earlier threats or even combinations of these threats. And though we might imagine that previously facing these challenges proves the resiliency of American democracy, you suggest that past periods of conflict have had serious, long-term consequences for the robustness of American political institutions and practices. Moreover, you suggest the beginning of the 21st century is unique in that we see all four threats, a serious threat to democracy. Book seeks to make sense of these threats using political science and history, but also sensitize voters to a critical moment, one that requires them to consider candidates and policy in light of whether democracy will be strengthened or weakened by their choices. Before we talk about the five periods and the four threats, I'd like to ask you about your collaboration. You've both written alone and collaborated with others. The two of you have authored the Oxford Handbook of American Political Development, uh, along with Richard Valley. But how did the two of you come to this subject, and, and how did you go about writing this book together? Well, uh, it's been quite a process. Um, Rob and I have known each other for a long time as both being scholars of American political development and having related interests. And we've been friends for a long time. 
We're both also people who have been instructors on our campuses for the big lecture classes on Introduction to American Politics. And both of us had taught it when we were first out of grad school in the 90s and then came back to it in more recent years. And we both had the experience that it was like coming back to teaching about a different country because so much had changed. Polarization had grown so much. And, you know, the institutions really seem to be struggling. Uh, and then we got to the 2016 election. And suddenly, I know that I felt that uh, it was a mind-bending experience. Even topics that seemed well-established, like the legitimacy of, of elections in the United States uh, and uh, the, the fact that they are, you know, not uh, permeated by fraud and people agree to that, that came into question. So did uh, the freedom of the press and all sorts of topics. And as I was struggling to catch up with this and reframing my lectures and rethinking things, I would find myself in conversations with colleagues of mine who study countries around the world where democracy has been deteriorating. And they seemed to understand what was going on in the United States better than I did. They had uh, a language and analytical framework for thinking about it. And what they would say was terrifying to me. They would say things like, well, you know, democracies, they come and they go. And we've had a good run in the United States and democracies don't last forever. And I was uh, rather stunned by this and felt that I needed to learn from them. And at the same time, I was having conversations with Rob about political history in the United States, which both of us study. And we were wondering, has the United States really encountered this kind of danger in the past? And what does that tell us about the kind of danger we're in now? So uh, Early in 2017, um, together we started the American Democracy Collaborative with other scholars who study, uh, who are comparative uh, politics scholars who study the deterioration of democracies worldwide, uh, and uh, other scholars of American political development, uh, particularly our friend Rick Vallely. And uh, we started having conferences and workshops, and this book grew out of that. So we decided at some point we needed to write a book, we we're going to do it together. And we worked really hard learning about these periods in history that we hadn't studied before. Uh, and it's been a great collaborative process. I often say that when I read a draft, you know, after a while, I don't know who wrote which sentences because I think we have a similar writing style. But um, I've learned so much from Rob along the way, and it's, it's been a great adventure. Um, that's what a great story, especially about forgetting your sentences. Um, as you were, uh, the, so this book came out of teaching, which is a sort of an interesting idea of sort of realizing where the, where the country was because you were presenting it to your students. I, I, I'm wondering, as you were writing the book, were the students the intended audience? Were you thinking about policy leaders? Were you thinking about political scientists? So I, one question is about who the intended audience for the book is. And also, I, I know it's very hard to promote a book in a pandemic, but I'm wondering what kind of responses you've already gotten from what audiences and whether it's what you expected or something quite different. Well, <clears throat> we deliberately set out to write a book that was not just uh, another political science monograph. We were intentionally writing 
um, for a broader audience. I think partly for our students, um, but but more generally for you know educated readers who have an interest in um, uh, in American history and in contemporary politics, and who were like us struggling to make sense of um, what's been a very challenging and unsettling few years in American politics. Um, so, uh, um, and we've actually been very pleased at the response to the book. Um, um, we've made, a, we've presented it to a number of different kinds of audiences, both academic audiences at universities, um, and more general, uh, audiences through podcasts and, 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 uh, you can't have a classic book tour in a pandemic, but, um, but through a variety of media. And, and I think people, it resonates with people. People um, are grasping for some way of understanding um, what's been unfolding in the United States, you know, not just in the last four years, but as we try and, and chart in the book, um, really over the last several decades, as these threats have been um, growing and converging to bring us to what's been really a crisis in the last few years. Um, so, you know, I would say that that was one of the more challenging things about writing the book, um, you know, as scholars and as as professional political scientists, where we are trained to write in a very particular way and in a very narrow and constrained way. Um, and there's a lot of, um, of uh, sort of jargon and inside chatter that goes on in professional writing. Um, and at least for me, I, I think one of the most challenging things and one of the most um, interesting things about writing the book was trying to push that stuff off to the side or into the footnotes at, at the very least um, and let the prose, the text of the book, really tell a story. Um, and one of the things we discovered as we were researching these um, amazing periods of history that we write about is um, once you sort of line up what happened in these periods, the narrative almost just writes itself. It's an incredibly um, powerful way of, of telling the story of American democracy, just to tell these very particular stories. So I think all of that, um, um, you know, was, was a way for us to take what we've um, studied and learned over long careers now and, and try and translate it into something that, that um, citizens and interested observers could could really grab onto. I thought you were really successful. Uh, I liked the way you would use the political science-y term, uh, but then explain it in very, very accessible, but not a simple way. And I thought that, uh, I, I felt like I was watching you struggle with those two um, different goals of communicating this sort of deep substance of these political science terms, but also making it readable. I, I was very impressed uh, with, with how you struck that balance. Um, let's start with a brief description of the four threats, political polarization, racism and nativism, economic inequality, and excessive executive power, just to get all of the listeners uh, caught up on on the, these these four basic ideas that are important throughout the five periods that you trace. Right. So I'll jump in here. So uh, political polarization 
This is the idea that uh, over time, society and politics becomes divided so that people feel like we're in two camps of us versus them. No longer do we just feel like the people in the other political party are our opponents, rather they feel like enemies. And every uh, election and every big policy making event feels like an existential crisis, where if your side loses, you feel um, that, that it's catastrophic um, because you think that it has that the, the future of the country is at stake. And uh, this has been emerging, of course, in the United States over the past few decades. Um, it really started uh, at the grassroots level, probably as um, coming out of the civil rights era as uh, white Southerners who had long been Democrats gradually shifted into the Republican Party. But then it was uh, public officials in the 1980s and beyond who uh, tried to, as, as politics be, as elections became very competitive, um, public officials themselves tried to um, build on political polarization to distinguish themselves from the other party because that helped them to get elected. Uh, and so it's taken both of these forms. And the, the problem with it for democracy is when, particularly if one party feels like um, they are going to lose unless they violate the rules of the game of democracy, they'll be willing to, to do that. They'll be willing to, um, at all costs, um, try to win, even if democracy is imperiled. Then this, the second conflict is uh, what we call conflict over who belongs um, or uh, a a conflict over the terms of membership and status of who's a full member of the political community. And uh, this comes into conflict a lot in the United States over race. I mean, it can also be over uh, ethnicity or gender, uh, but, you know, from the beginning, because of slavery being part of the enslavement of of African-Americans being part of the American founding, and you have, you know, an entire group of people who is cut off from full membership because of that. And then this resurges again and again as a, what, what a scholars call a formative rift, a basic conflict in the United States, that unless we can finally resolve that, we're going to keep happening upon it. And when it emerges, it can create a crisis for democracy if um, those on the side of keeping existing hierarchies or restoring those from the past are willing to to fight for that and at all costs, never mind what happens to democracy. And, you know, we have that kind of, of conflict now in society and it's overlapping with political polarization where the Democratic Party is um, arguably more than ever before wanting to expand the promises of equality for all citizens uh, to ensure those promises to all citizens. Um, and the Republican Party um, has become a party that is um, much more white than the population as a whole and has been digging in its heels to try to preserve existing hierarchies. The third conflict is uh, over economic inequality. We've had rising economic inequality in the United States uh, since the 1970s. And what we've learned from countries worldwide is that when the most affluent people 
um, are concerned that if uh, the the bottom 99% of lower and middle income people gain political power, they are going to enact policies that will raise taxes on the rich and uh, create, you know, uh, regulatory policies that uh, the affluent owners of businesses don't like, then the rich will, at all costs, try to lock down um, the existing uh, distribution of resources that benefits them and the political power that's necessary for that. And then finally, the fourth threat is executive aggrandizement. And uh, this refers to the growth and concentration of power in the top leader in the country, in the United States. It's the growth of the presidency, presidential power relative to executive power, relative to legislative power. And of course, this has been happening in the United States uh, since the 1930s. Um, It's, you know, in the main, this occurs because presidents are trying to respond to broad public needs. But it can become problematic if you have a president who's willing to use those executive powers for their own personal and political gain and to abuse power in the process. Uh, Rob, did you want to? Yeah. So, so um, what's really striking about the threats is that each one of them individually um, can can pose problems for democracy. This is one of the things we learned from our comparative politics colleagues, all of these things are things we know from the study of the rise and fall of democracy in other countries that can pose problems for democracy. Um, What we find over the course of history then is that um, it's the way these things combine and appear in different combinations at different points in history um, that really drives the the story of the book. Um, And we see, you know, recurring uh, patterns of combinations of threats, um, and and what's really distinctive about the contemporary period is, um, whereas in the past we've seen one or two or three threats combine all at once, um, this is the first time that we've ever seen all four uh, converge together at the same time. As I was reading the book, I wondered whether you had determined the four threats first or you had determined the five periods first. And I'm, I'm wondering what the relationship was uh, in, in figuring, in, in, in determining these four as the threats. Well, I think, I think the, the, the threats emerged, um, as I said, from our work with colleagues in comparative politics um, and from really getting them to help us think about democracy in general and what's been what's made for successful or fragile democracies um, elsewhere. So I think these are, for the most part, um, reasonably well-known categories of threats to democracy in the comparative democratization literature. Um, you know, I think um, as we delve more into American history, we um, came to a more refined and clear understanding of what they mean and how they express themselves in the United States. Um, the periods was a was an interesting uh, process. I mean, you know, the um, the periods that we look at the 1790s, the 1850s, and the run up to the Civil War, the 1890s at the end of Reconstruction, the 1930s, and then the 1970s and Watergate. Um, those are all periods when um, people in the United States had reason to believe that democracy 
was fragile or that we were at risk of backsliding, that we were at risk of moving in the wrong direction. Um, and so we very quickly zeroed in on, on some of these. Um, the, the, the 1850s, I think, was an obvious uh, failure of democracy in the United States. The 1790s and the um, conflict leading up to the 1800 election. Uh, Watergate, obviously, was certainly on everybody's mind um, at the, throughout much of the Trump administration. Um, so that sort of presented itself, obviously. Um, uh, and the 1890s as a moment of, um, of dramatic de-democratization as voting rights were taken away from millions of African-American men in the South. Um, the, the last one that we came to and the one that I don't think we expected to write about when we started working on the book was the 1930s, um, which we often think of as, in retrospect, as a moment of triumph for democracy. The, this was... Um, you know, uh, the, the Depression, neither the Depression nor World War II um, leading into the Cold War sort of laid um, American democracy low. And if anything, American democracy uh, emerged triumphant from this middle of the 20th century period and then on to the civil rights triumphs of the 1960s. Um, but the more we thought about it, and we did have a, a, um, a very critical intervention from a, actually a former graduate student of mine who was a uh, discussant at a conference where we were presenting some early material from the book. Um, and, and she said, you know, you really ought to write about the 1930s because um, as, uh, um, as Ira Katz-Nelson has written about the, the 1930s, this was a period when Americans genuinely and deeply believed that democracy, as they had come to understand it, was um, under threat. Um, looking across the Atlantic to the rise of fascism and various kinds of totalitarianism in Europe, looking at the collapse of, of the of global capitalism and the Great Depression. Um, so the, the 1930s was the last period we added. Um, um, and, it, and, and I'm glad we did, actually, because it really puts some of the stories, especially uh, the story about the growth of executive power in very sharp relief. Let's, um, obviously we can't summarize a book of this much detail, but I, I think that the chapters are so beautifully organized and they are written such that there are big takeaways that I think we can capture for the listeners in, in the podcast. Uh, the first substantive chapter is about the polarization over the Alien and Sedition Acts in the 1790s. So, can you take us through, we, uh, we've had, uh, for example, recently, we've had Julian Zelizer, who's burning down the houses about polarization um, and trying to, to figure out where it comes from. You have your take. Can you just talk us through a little bit about why the 1790s was of such interest to you and the, the, the major things that we should, we should know as, as citizens and political scientists? Yes, I would be delighted to talk about this. So the 1790s is very striking. You know, I think that a lot of Americans today assume that the kind of fractiousness we have now is really, you know, the, the fault of modern society. And that certainly the people who were the founding fathers of this country were well above that. Well, it turns out that's not the case. I mean, if you um, look at how some of them were talking when the Constitution was being founded, they did not anticipate the creation of political parties, and they thought that such groups would be problematic. 
But frankly, no sooner was the ink dry on the Constitution and some of these very same people are governing, then they found it was necessary to start creating political parties. At, at the time, they didn't call them parties. They were uh, really like organized political factions. But what happened very quickly out of the gate was that uh, there were policy disagreements and disagreements about the vision of how the United States should develop um, in terms of its, uh, its economy. And uh, so you had uh, Alexander Hamilton uh, working with George Washington and the Federalists. They became known as the Federalists on the one side, and they, for the most part, were uh, in charge of government. And then you had what emerged as the opposition party, led by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, and they became known as the Democratic Republicans. Uh, and so very quickly, uh, these particular individual leaders were fighting it out in the partisan media, in newspapers that they created. And they would write uh, what were frankly anonymous op-eds, <laughs> unsigned pieces where they would go after each other and argue about these different policies um, that they were concerned about. And that was just the beginning in the early 1790s. And uh, then you, you also had um, American citizens who were incensed about particular policies. So out living on the frontier in Pennsylvania or close to the frontier were all of these farmers who produced whiskey. Um, and there was a new tax on distilled spirits that was part of uh, Hamilton's financial plan. And they wanted to resist it. They didn't want to pay these taxes. Well, this uh, conflict went on for years. They were um, doing things like capturing federal tax collectors and tarring and feathering them, which was a form of torture in that era. Uh, eventually, um, they are starting to make plans, uh, some thousands of them, to uh, try to, to um, really storm Pittsburgh and take arms, uh, shut down the mail service. And when the Washington administration catches wind of this, um, they decide that it's necessary to put down the insurrection. And Washington himself, as president, leads troops gathered from four states uh, and uh, 15,000 of them. And Washington is on horseback at the front, leading them to Western Pennsylvania to put down the rebels. They get there and the leaders of the rebels have already fled into the into the frontier um, and so they try to round up a few people, but they have very little evidence against them. And ultimately, all the, the charges are um, are abandoned. But, uh, you know, that is, um, you know, the, this first instance of the federal government really using its power to try to put down an insurrection of citizens. And we, the, as the 1790s um, goes on, you have one conflict after another. And um, you know, at, at you get to the uh, the enactment of the Alien and Sedition Acts that um, President John Adams signs into law, and these are a thinly veiled effort to try to suppress the political opposition because they call for the deportation of uh, 
of immigrants from countries that are, are deemed to be dangerous. And well, that just so happens to be countries where people who are affiliated with the Democratic Republicans are from, um, France and, and Ireland. Um, and, uh, and that it, it also includes the Sedition Acts, which um, can be used to arrest people, journalists and others, who are uh, being critical of the federal government. So at this point, after this is signed into law, Jefferson and Madison are incensed, and they go to some of the states where Democratic Republicans are in power, and they encourage those states to adopt uh, policies saying that they will not recognize uh, these laws and they will not administer them. So by the time you get to the election of 1800, um, both sides are really expecting that you know, this first decade of governance under the new constitution might be the last and that the uh, country might, you know, depending upon the outcome of the election, there might be uh, violence, at least, and perhaps a civil war, perhaps secession. Uh, and uh, there's a deadlocked election uh, and uh, there's, you know, finally a resolution to it. And remarkably, despite everyone's fears, there is a peaceful transition of power and Thomas Jefferson um, be, becomes president. And so it's the first time that there's a, a, a peaceful transfer of power from the Federalists to the Democratic Republicans and the nation carries on. But it was a really polarized decade and it shows how polarization, even when it's acting all by itself, um, can create major havoc and that's uh, dangerous for, for the extent to which democracy existed at that point. It very well could have been uh, derailed. It's funny, usually you have to do a lot of work to make the parallels uh, clear uh, as, as you're thinking about the current period, but it kind of just jumps out at you that you don't have to do very much to see, especially the conflict between the idea of sanctuary cities and resisting uh, what's perceived to be a, a national um, a national law that's, uh, that's uh, problematic. Rob, I'm sorry, I think you wanted to get in as well. No, no, no. Well, um... The one thing I would uh, add to uh, thinking about the election of 1800, which carries over into the next period, is that one of the things that um, uh, that uh, shaped the outcome of the election of 1800 was the three-fifths clause of the Constitution. Now, this is really important um, because it gives um, Southern slaveholding states extra representation. It gives white voters in Southern slaveholding states, extra representation in Congress and the Electoral College. Um, without those votes, historians, without those extra votes, historians have um, estimated um, John Adams would have won the election of 1800 and this whole crisis wouldn't have happened. Um, so the whole uh, election is determined on the backs of the three-fifths clause, um, which then for decades shapes the the balance of the party system um, and inflates the power of the South um, to protect slavery uh, over the first half of the 19th century, um, leading up to the next crisis, which comes in the 1850s. Well, let's move to that next crisis. Uh, certainly the slave power that made uh, Southern states more powerful in terms of policy that was passed in Congress uh, was was really important to setting up the context of what happens in the 1850s. So let's let's move into that disintegration. Yeah. So what happens um, 
is, I mean, obviously this is a very complicated, um, long drawn out conflict, but over the decades leading up to the 1850s, um, resistance and controversy over the practice of human enslavement grows uh, around the country. The, um, uh, the North grows in size and, and power relative to the South. And the South, um, which has sort of hidden behind the three-fifths clause um, for decades, finds that it increasingly has to reach for um, anti-democratic tactics in order to protect um, uh, slavery, um, a gag rule in Congress in the 1840s. Um, censorship of um, anti-slavery material, you know, um, um, through the, controlling the mail in, in the South as Northern abolitionists are trying to send anti-slavery tracts to people in the South through the mail. Um, the, 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 this really breaks out into open conflict and, and really open warfare before the Civil War in Kansas in the 1850s. Um, um, this is a new territory. Uh, uh, that's been created by Congress. And um, the settlers in Kansas go about, white settlers in Kansas go about um, trying to set up a government, a territorial government as preparation for um, being considered for statehood by Congress. Um, And this quickly devolves into conflict between pro-slavery and anti-slavery settlers. Um, So you have a series of disputed elections um, that are marred by fraud and violence um, and and killing in some cases. Um, And eventually you have um, a complete breakdown of the idea that there are um, sort of two points of view and and there can be a legitimate opposition. Um, The idea of a legitimate opposition, which is sort of foundational to a democratic system, just completely disintegrates. Um, those who are opposed to your view become the enemy, quite literally. Um, so you have, as I said, violent conflict between pro and anti-slavery militias. You have at one point essentially dueling sets of elections to different state legislatures um, and different constitutions that have been adopted by pro and anti-slavery um, um, citizens in the territory of Kansas. Um, and by the end of the 1850s, um, inflamed by things like the Dred Scott decision, um, the the party system, um, which for decades the, the division between Democrats and Whigs essentially managed to keep slavery off the national agenda, the party system has com- com- has been completely reorganized around slavery. So you have a new, um, increasingly popular anti-slavery party, the Republicans. Um, and uh, and a Democratic Party that's still trying to grapple with how to how to manage its views on on slavery. Um, and by the time of the 1860 presidential election, you have essentially two separate elections in the United States, almost mirroring what happened in territorial elections in Kansas earlier in the 1850s. Um, there are four candidates. There's essentially in the North a contest between Abraham Lincoln, the Republican, and Stephen Douglas, who's the candidate of the northern half of the Democratic Party. In the South, you have an election between John Breckinridge, the vice president, who is the candidate of the southern half of the Democratic Party, and and a man named John Bell, um, who's a former Whig who still uh, believed that the Union could be saved. Um, And uh, so you have 
you know, two separate contests between two separate pairs of candidates. Lincoln wins the election in 1860 legitimately. He won a clear majority of the electoral vote nationwide, um, a pretty sizable plurality of the popular vote. But um, Southerners discover that this man has been elected president who didn't even appear on the ballot in most Southern states um, and who they saw as an existential threat to the value that they most cared about, which was the enslavement of African-Americans. And faced with this choice between accepting the outcome of a democratic election and um, preserving um, their system of enslavement, they chose slavery. Um, And so immediately after Lincoln is um, elected, even before he takes office, um, um, uh, six or seven Southern states secede form the Confederate States of America. Um, Lincoln has to dodge an assassination plot on his way to Washington for the inauguration. And then a month after, um, after he's inaugurated, um, the conflict becomes um, uh, the Civil War if, when, when Confederate troops fire on Fort Sumter. Um, so you can see in real time the breakdown of, of these core democratic pillars and, and values um, over, this, over this conflict. So once we get out of the 1850s, and we won't go over the war because I think listeners are are fairly familiar with it, and we want people to buy the book and read it, um, we move to a period in which uh, Reconstruction and the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, in principle and in practice, um, empower newly enfranchised Black men. Um, but your chapter focuses not on that part, but on the backsliding that comes after it. So, Suzanne, I'm wondering if you could just uh, give us some of the main takeaways from the chapter on the 1890s. Yes, I'd like to do that. Uh, this, I will say that researching and writing this chapter was a big eye-opener to me, and I, I feel like it's very relevant in terms of understanding the possibilities of backsliding today. So if we look at this period of the late 19th century, democracy was really on the rise. And uh, people who had political rights, which now included African-American men, were very politically active and the political parties were politically active. You had the emergence of a third party, the populists, uh, which was an agrarian party and it was active in the West and the South. And uh, so things seemed to be going quite well, but it was at this very juncture that threats emerged. And the three threats that we mentioned were um, were all, you know, quite high in the 1890s. And I want to zoom in to what happened in uh, North Carolina, because I think it illustrates really well the, the larger dynamics in the South at that time. So um, in uh, in North Carolina, the uh, African-Americans, as they were elsewhere in the South, were uh, voted for Republicans and they were running for elective office as Republicans. And they uh, then you also had the emergence of the Populist Party in North Carolina. And these two parties would usually get beaten by the Democrats, who were the the white party led by business people and other white elites. But what they realized was that if they worked together, the fusionists and the republic, excuse me, the populists and the republicans on what they called a fusion approach running uh, on uh, candidates on the same ballot, they could actually beat the Democrats. 
And that's what they did in various elections in the 1890s. They started to take control of uh, state and local offices in the state. And at this point, the white Democrats decided they'd had enough and that it was time to take radical action in order to shut down the political competition. And so they had a concerted strategy in uh, 1898, where first they uh, they took uh, control so that they would do well in the election. They did a lot of stuffing of ballot boxes even before the election. They tried to intimidate uh, Republicans from running candidates and from voting. And so they managed to gain back control of the state legislature. But then two days later, they'd staged a coup d'etat in the city of Wilmington, North Carolina. Now, Wilmington at that time was uh, really a, a sign of success for African-Americans. They were moving into the middle class. They held lots of elective offices locally. And uh, what happened on that one day, November 10th, 1898, is that white paramilitary groups uh, gathered in the morning at the city armory. They marched first to the office of the Black-owned newspaper, and they burned it down. It was the only daily Black-owned newspaper in the nation. They burned it down. Then they proceeded to um, march into white, into Black neighborhoods, and they killed many African-Americans, hundreds, as the day went on. And they also uh, dragged people from their homes, various leaders, uh, and they took them to the train station, banished them from town. And by the end of the day, they forced at gunpoint the resignation of those who were, were serving in the board of aldermen and as the, the mayor, the sheriff, and so on, and replaced them with their own. So the white Democrats were then in control, in power, and uh, they were statewide as well. And what they did in the months that followed was that they enacted poll taxes and literacy tests, which would subsequently um, prohibit African-Americans from voting. States all over the South followed them. Some of them had actually already acted to enact these poll taxes and literacy tests. So the whole region enacted these disenfranchising African-Americans, and it lasted for 60 years. And, you know, once people had lost political rights, uh, then they lost civil rights and civil liberties as well. And you have Jim Crow set up all over the South um, and this rigid system of segregation, which is really like American apartheid. The federal government looked the other way while this was happening, did not intervene despite the pleas of African-Americans to do so. What this illustrates is that major backsliding is not only possible in the United States, but it's happened and it was tolerated for a very long time. And it happened when three threats collided. Thanks so much. Uh, That chapter is really harrowing. And uh, no, I recommend the book to everybody, particularly that part. Rob, I'm going to ask you to do sort of the impossible, which is to cover executive aggrandizement in the 30s and the weaponized presidency in the 70s sort of together so that we have some time to reflect on what's happened since the book is published and the conclusions in the book and the what you're asking readers to to think about uh, once once they've processed the four threats and the five periods. Sure. Well, the the story of American politics in the 20th century is really largely the story of the growth of presidential power. 
um, which is the one threat of the four that really wasn't present earlier in the in, in history. Um, and we begin telling that story with uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And Franklin Roosevelt takes office at this moment of deep crisis for uh, for liberal democracy the world over. Um, and many people expected him and even were urging him to sort of assume dictatorial powers. Um, he didn't. Um, democracy survived. But by the end of the Roosevelt presidency, he leaves uh, off, an office much more powerful um, with much greater tools um, to control uh, uh, politics and policy than when he entered office. Some of this is well known, the growth of the administrative state, the growth of the White House staff. Um, some of it fails, the attempt to pack the courts um, in 1937. Um, some of the things that Roosevelt does um, have, a, have a, some of the things that Roosevelt does have a very dark cast to them. Um, the well-known uh, mass incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, um, but also less well-known in 1940, right before the United States gets into the war, Roosevelt signs a secret memo um, that's actually authored by J. Edgar Hoover, who was already the director of the FBI, authorizing um, illegal wiretapping uh, uh, in order to um, uh, help with counter-espionage. Uh, Roosevelt was obsessed with Nazi uh, subversion in the United States. So, so Roosevelt leaves the presidency with a lot of tools that an opportunistic president later on could take up um, uh, to serve his own personal and political interests, which is exactly what happens in the 1970s um, with Richard Nixon. The scandal we know as Watergate is really the tip of a very large iceberg um, of, of uh, skullduggery. Um, that boils down to Nixon trying to use the power and tools of a very strong presidency to serve his own political interests, um, to go after his enemies and so forth. Um, you know, Nixon is eventually brought down essentially by a bipartisan coalition and by a number of actors playing their prescribed constitutional roles. Congress uh, was on the way to impeaching him, um, uh, prosecutors, judges, the press, everyone did their job. But this was a moment like the 1930s when executive aggrandizement was really the only prominent threat. The other three threats in these two 20th century episodes were at relatively low ebbs. Um, so, you know, even executive power by itself uh, can, can do some damage. Um, but it's somewhat, it's, it's, it's somewhat restrained when the other three threats are low. So my colleague, Laura Bucci at St. Joseph's, uh, assigned your book to her students in her elections class. Um, obviously, it's a new book, so she wasn't really able to you know, preview it for too long. And I have, I have sort of two questions that come out of my conversation with Laura and also one of her students um, via Facebook. Um, first of all, as, as we think about these four threats, I'm wondering what you think about them being as sort of asymmetrically relevant. For example, you know, could we say that polarization is a threat, but that there's some prior cause that's pushing that polarization? And, and how did you sort of grapple with that possible problem as you were kind of coming up with these, um, with the assigning of responsibility uh, for the decline? Uh, another question has to do with the student was frustrated with the ending of the book because she thought that there had been incredible clarity about the four threats, but she wasn't sure what was now to be done. What were 
the next steps. Um, and, and I also had a question about neutrality. I think the book works really, really hard to, um, to show this as something that came from various different parties. So sometimes you seem very, very neutral about assigning the responsibility. Um, but I'm wondering in the 21st century, as you're taking that apart, the extent to which you see this as a both sides and, um, and whether you can sort of elaborate a little bit on that, like what happens, uh, is, is it, is it the case as some Demo uh, as capital D Democrats would like to think that, that it is the Republican party that is practicing this kind of scorched earth politics and they're trying to maintain institutions and, and practices. Anyway, that's a lot of different questions, but it's a way of leading into the conclusion of your book and you can pick and choose as to which the, of those you answer. It, it's been a while since you put this to, to publication. So, Really, what is it that you think should be the takeaway for the reader, and what did you conclude after looking at these five periods? Well, I think that um, you know what we really learned in writing this book is that American democracy has been fragile at many times in the past, and you know, coming of age and growing up in the late twentieth century. Um, for the most part, things were fairly calm. And so we could be lulled into the idea that American democracy is secure and it can't be fundamentally endangered. But looking at the past, one realizes it's actually been in danger time and again, and sometimes major backsliding has occurred. And that could occur now as well. And we're not immune to it. So that's our, our big takeaway from it. Um, and one of the things I we haven't talked about that I want to highlight is we were really looking at, in any given period, how much damage occurred to any of what we call the four pillars of democracy. And these are free and fair elections, the rule of law, the legitimacy of the opposition, and the integrity of rights. And sometimes they were endangered, but there wasn't really damage. In other instances, like the 1890s, there was lasting damage um, to really all, all four of those. And so when we're looking at the contemporary period, that's, that was, you know, what we were looking at. And so we saw that, you know, the four threats, as I mentioned at the beginning, have all been on the rise for some time. Um, and uh, to the question of, you know, whether both parties are responsible, political polarization has emerged in a dynamic. Both parties have, have um, exacerbated it. But what we found uh, ultimately in looking at the contemporary period is that it is the Republican Party which has been willing to do things that endanger these four pillars of democracy. And that's been happening particularly um, in the last four years and especially in this year of 2020 with um, at an accelerating pace. And, you know, now in the, the wake of an election, um, well, you know, go, going into the election, um, the Republicans were were taking all sorts of actions to try to prevent people from voting, even in the midst of a pandemic, um, and now challenging votes in the wake of an election, um, and uh, Trump's unwillingness to concede as a violation of the legitimacy of the political opposition, that when a party wins election, they win the right to govern and all that goes with it. 
and the losing party needs to look to the next election to to try to to win again. Um, and and meanwhile, the rule of law has been violated. Um, President Trump has been using the Department of Justice as if it's a, his own um, personal law firm, relying upon um, Attorney General Barr to support his claims of you know uh, illegitimate votes in the election and to go after these um, to pursue these frivolous lawsuits. Um, much to the you know chagrin of, of many longtime um, employees of that department who have worked in this area for a long time, um, and so uh, so you know that's a great concern to us, and uh, and so we do think that this is a time when Americans need to take very seriously the need to bolster these four pillars of democracy. Trying to scale back the threats is really ambitious, and that's hard work. Um, and political scientists, you know, know all too well that once polarization is raging, there are no simple fixes to that. But in the meanwhile, so that this political competition can happen and conflict can happen without democracy being undermined, we need to um, strengthen the pillars. And so, so that's really our conclusion. Yeah, and I would add to that. Um, you know, I think the question about uh, the the sort of prior causes of polarization is a good one. Um, but what we focus on is less the causes of polarization than the consequences of polarization, especially when it occurs um, in conjunction with other threats. Um, when when the parties are are polarized, when they're really at odds with each other, and when um, as as Francis Lee has has shown, when when parties are really competitive, um, then the strategic demand of distinguishing yourself from the other party, your team from the other team, um, becomes really important. Um, that dynamic can then be exacerbated and deepened in the presence of these other threats, particularly conflict over uh, membership, uh, race or immigration, for example, or economic inequality, which gives polarizing politicians, and this has been happening particularly in the Republican Party in the last few decades, gives polarizing politicians the opportunity and the means to um, uh, to target the other side and to unite uh, their voters um, and to mobilize voters and to um, you know create these antagonisms. So um, so it's that it's that sort of cascading dynamic of polarization along with other threats, and then on top of that. You know, a very powerful presidency in the presence of polarization gives presidents, again, the means and the opportunity and the motive to use these very powerful tools of, a, you know, of an out-of-control executive establishment um, to, to target the other side. Rob, when you, when you talk about means, uh, and I had this thought as the book progressed, I was wondering what you think about communication and the fact that the the things that have been in play were there. You talk a lot about the different types of media that were present in all five periods and the role that they played and the fact that they were at many times biased. But I'm wondering if you see any differences in the means of communication that also creates uh, a sort of a more... Uh, 
a kind of faster-moving threat to democracy in the period that we're in currently? I think it's the faster-moving. Um, this is not an area where I have particular expertise, um, but I think it's the faster-moving element of, of communication now um, that's the new feature. I mean, as you said, pretty much all of these periods um, feature some kind of partisan press. Um, the 1790s had these newspaper wars, each of these factions, the Federalists and Republicans had their own uh, newspaper that, as Suzanne said earlier, were full of these anonymous sort of screeds um, targeting um, people on the other side, often very personal. Um, so the idea of the press as this sort of neutral, investigative, fact-finding pillar of, of, of democratic rectitude that we're familiar with from the, say, middle and late 20th century is sort of an artifact of that period of American history. Um, what I think is, is, is new is the speed with which, you know, you through social media uh, or the sort of 24-hour cable news cycle, um, that these ideas, partisan ideas and misinformation can take hold uh, and spread. And we're seeing the consequences of that play out right in front of our very eyes here in the middle of November watching all kinds of crazy uh, stories about the election um, um, uh, scatter throughout the country. Well, I think we could talk about this forever. Uh, the, the book is so rich, the examples so thought-provoking. Um, but uh, I want to remind listeners that we are talking about the recurring crises of American democracy. Sorry, four threats, the recurring crises of American democracy. I'm going to say that again. Four Threats, The Recurring Crisis of American Democracy, published by St. Martin's. Um, what are the two of you working on? What are the next projects that we can expect to, to see coming from either you individually or together? Well, I've been starting on a project um, about the rural-urban divide in the United States today, which has uh, really been on the rise over the past quarter century. And I think that it's driving polarization and that it has all sorts of implications for democracy. So uh, that that's what I'm getting immersed in right now. And I'm uh, uh, at the beginning of a project with my friend and occasional co-author Desmond King on um, the history of race and what we call the civil rights state. It's almost uh, the flip side of this book in that we're looking and trying to understand a period when um, uh, when uh, democratization actually um, advanced in the United States, the, the period of the civil rights revolution after, the, after World War II, and trying to understand what it was that allowed the American state to transform itself, at least temporarily, um, into a protector of uh, equal status for uh, African Americans. Well, those both sound fascinating, and I hope when you're done, you'll come back to talk to us at New Books in Political Science. Suzanne and Rob, thank you for the book, and thank you so much for the conversation and your time today. Thank you, Susan. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. 